people can do amazing things. Walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone. Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated, and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, and this week we're getting wild in the city as we find out if there's space for animals in the concrete jungle, and also how conservationists are persuading us to put nature first in an increasingly urbanised world. Plus, in the news, we learn how training the brain could make the difference for our athletes, and if diamonds really are made from coal. I'm Connie Orbach. And I'm Kat Arney, and you're listening to The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. But first, a breakthrough in vaccination technology, which could speed up the production of vaccines for outbreaks like Ebola, Zika or the flu, has been announced this week. Traditionally, vaccines are made by growing the infectious disease in culture and then deactivating it and purifying it. This takes time. But now, Omar Khan has invented a nanoparticle that can deliver into the body small pieces of genetic information in a form called RNA that encode for parts of the disease-causing microbe. This enables the body to read those instructions and rapidly churn out both protective antibodies and infection-fighting white blood cells, as he explained to Chris Smith. We decided to turn the patient's cells into the vaccine production factory. And the way we do that is that we use nucleic acid or RNA, ribose nucleic acid. That is genetic information. These are instruction sets that your cells can read and follow. So we can tell the cells to produce the vaccine itself. And in that way, we can train the immune system to immunize itself to fight off whatever disease we program in. What you're describing sounds very like what we call a DNA vaccine. The rationale there is you inject the genetic message corresponding to the thing that you want the immune system to make and learn to recognise, and cells decode the DNA and make that thing. But you're not using DNA, you're using its relative RNA, which is, it's like DNA but single-stranded. It's, it's the intermediate that the cells use when they turn DNA into a recipe that they're going to make. Why have you gone down that route of using RNA? DNA has some inherent difficulties to it. The first one is that when you try to deliver DNA instruction sets, you need to get it inside the cell nucleus. That's where you can activate and use and read the DNA instruction set. 
The other problem is that DNA is inherently dangerous. There is a chance that the DNA that you put inside a body can actually integrate into your normal DNA. And these kind of random integrations can cause cancer. And RNA can't do that. RNA will never do that. So it's so much safer. The way this is done is, first of all, my colleague can make these instruction sets that we can program for any disease we'd like. Then the novel bit of this technology is actually the nanotechnology delivery system. So what I've done is that I've made a special molecule. It's a nanomaterial. This nanomaterial is able to take those instruction sets and package them into nanoparticles. Those can just be injected into the muscle cells of the patient. And in doing so, we're able to achieve complete protective immunity for whatever disease we program in. Can you package more than one instruction set? So if I wanted to do multiple vaccinations against multiple things at once, could I make a nanoparticle that's got in it these RNA instructions for a range of different entities? So I just do one injection once? Absolutely. In this nanomaterial, I have designed in an enormous payload capacity, which means I can put in multiple instruction sets, each encoding a unique disease if we'd like, or multiple targets for a single disease. So multiple instruction sets can easily fit into this particular nanomaterial. What's the evidence, though, Omar, that this works? Does it really work if you give this to an animal? Actually, yes, it it works extremely well. So using the system, we've made vaccines against a wide variety of diseases, including Ebola virus and H1N1 influenza and even Toxoplasma gondii, which is a microorganism parasite. So what we've done is we have actually vaccinated healthy animals with these nanoparticle vaccines. Then we gave them lethal exposures to all of these pathogens. And all of these animals have survived with a single injection. So that's tremendous results. First of all, single injection means you never have to go back to the hospital for a second booster shot. Some vaccines need that. And the fact that all of these animals survive and are healthy, despite being exposed to lethal exposures to deadly pathogens, that is proof positive that this works. And there's no danger that the nanoparticles will trigger an immune response in the animal against the particle so that the vaccine might work once, but if you came back and tried to do it again, the immune system would gobble it up and destroy it before it had a chance to drive any immunity? No, we don't have a problem with that because of two major points. The first of all is that the system is so efficient that we need so little to vaccinate a patient that that should not elicit an immune response. It's also designed to actually be very tolerable to the body. Well, that certainly sounds promising, doesn't it? That's Omar Khan. He's at MIT, and he's just published that work in the journal PNAS. Now, photosynthesis is the process by which plants and some bacteria use water, carbon dioxide, and the energy in sunlight to produce sugars to feed themselves, giving off oxygen as a byproduct. In plants, this process takes place in structures in the leaves called chloroplasts, which contain the green-coloured substance chlorophyll. But the chlorophyll plants make can capture only a certain part of the light spectrum, meaning some light is wasted. Certain ancient microbes, though, called cyanobacteria, have a different form of chlorophyll that can collect this light, and putting it into modern plants might make them grow much more efficiently. I spoke to Penn State University's Donald Bryant to hear how. 
Cyanobacteria are a group of photosynthetic bacteria that make oxygen from water like higher plants. They are the organisms which gave rise to chloroplasts in higher plants, and they continue today to be the most successful of all photosynthetic bacteria. Some cyanobacteria have the capacity to grow in far red light. Those are longer wavelengths, lower energy than we can see with our eyes, and use that light energy also to drive uh, water oxidation and oxygen evolution. So they're capable of doing something that plants can't do presently and do it in such a way that it's beneficial to them. So plants only use the, the visible spectrum, is that right? Uh, Yes, that's generally correct. They use blue light to red light, the visible spectrum, and presently plants very inefficiently use any wavelengths longer or shorter than those. So one of the goals of plant molecular biology is to increase light utilization, and one way to accomplish that would be to introduce the capacity to use far red light into plants. So how do the cyanobacteria use this different part of the light? Well, they use a special type of chlorophyll, the molecule that traps and absorbs sunlight. This is known as chlorophyll F, and it can absorb far red light. But what Donald and his team have now discovered, and what takes us one step further in actually using this amazing property, is the enzyme required to make it, chlorophyll F synthase. We identified candidate genes by making mutations in the cyanobacteria that can perform this far red light photosynthesis with the expectation that if we found the correct gene, they would not synthesize chlorophyll F and they would be unable to grow in far red light. We identified in two separate organisms genes that had those properties, taking that gene then and expressing it in a cyanobacterium which normally cannot grow in far red light, allowed that organism to synthesize chlorophyll F, confirming unequivocally that the gene that we had identified as responsible for making chlorophyll F synthase. So it's something just as simple as this one gene will confer into another plant the ability to create chlorophyll F? It is a simple, single gene product, and that's one of the beauties of this, is that it should be relatively simple to produce chlorophyll F in plants. Whether or not those plants will be able to productively use the chlorophyll F that is made is something that will have to be studied and perhaps adjusted. But nevertheless, making the chlorophyll should not be all that difficult. And if you could get this gene working in higher plants to a point that they could use it and they could then use the far red light, what sorts of difference is this going to make in terms of us growing plants globally? How much difference can it really make? That's an excellent question. The amount of light that's available between 7 and 800 nanometers, the region that is covered by the absorption of chlorophyll F, accounts for about 25% of the visible light. So in principle, it would add about 25% more light available to the plant for growth. So I would say that potential is substantial. Donald Bryant and his work was published in Science. Greya here from Naked Astronomy. I wanted to say hey and tell you about my new podcast. It's an awesome audio adventure into the big black cosmos that we inhabit. What's out there? How did it all begin? And what will happen in the end? Presented and produced by yours truly. You can find it on most podcasting platforms. Just search Naked Astronomy.
You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Katani, and with Connie Orbach. Later in the show, we'll find out why there might be more to brownfield sites than meets the eye and how conservationists are persuading us to get on board with nature. But before that, it's time for our regular misconception. And this week, Kat, you've been feeling the pressure a little bit. I certainly have. In the film Superman 3, because we should all get our science from the movies, the so-called Man of Steel becomes a man of coal, crushing a lump of the black stuff in his fist to create a huge, glittering diamond. It's a neat party trick, and it helps to reinforce the idea that coal, which is basically carbon, can be converted into diamonds, which are also made of carbon, just by applying enough pressure. But, like the man with his pants on over his tights, the idea that diamonds are made from coal is fictional. So what's the true origin story for these sparkling gems? Well, according to geological studies, natural diamonds formed over a billion years ago, created from the forces of extreme pressure and temperature deep underground in the early Earth to convert carbon-rich minerals into bright, shiny diamonds. And we're talking serious stress here, the kind of pressure that's found up to 150 kilometres down in the Earth and temperatures of more than 1,000 degrees Celsius, stoked by molten magma in extra-deep volcanoes. These volcanoes then erupted up towards the surface of the Earth, pushing up magma that formed rocks of types known as lamproites and kimberlites, named after the South African diamond-rich region of Kimberley, along with any diamonds that came along for the ride. It's these rocks that are mined for diamonds in places such as Central and South Africa and shipped around the world as tokens of love, although sadly in some cases also fueling arms trading and bloody conflicts with the profits. Diamonds can also form in the so-called subduction zones, where one plate of the Earth's crust containing a sea floor slips under another. Based on chemical analysis of diamonds formed in this way, carbon-rich rocks in the seabed are thought to get crushed and transformed into gems, rather than coal. There are a couple more ways to make diamonds too, and neither of those involve coal either. One is at the sites of high-impact asteroid strikes, which would generate the extreme temperatures and pressures required. And the other is through similar impacts happening in space, with the resulting tiny diamonds falling to Earth, embedded within meteorites. By contrast, plants, which give rise to coal as they fossilise, weren't even around until about 450 million years ago, and coal didn't even start forming on Earth until three to 400 million years ago. That's a few hundred million years at least too late for diamond formation. The oldest land plants are younger than any natural diamond, so the timing just doesn't work out for a start. And coal isn't ever found as deep down as the places where diamonds are believed to form. Then there's the chemistry. Diamond is a crystalline form of pure carbon, neatly arranged with each carbon atom strongly bonded to four other carbon atoms, while coal is a much more random, higgledy-piggledy assembly of atoms, along with a whole bunch of impurities. But there's another form of carbon that can be converted to diamond under just the right conditions, and that's graphite, which is made of thin sheets of carbon atoms joined together in hexagonal rings. By applying extremely high pressure and high temperature, known as HPHT, it's possible to convert graphite into diamond, although it's quite a tricky method that isn't used very much anymore. 
Or if you prefer a flashier way, you can just use high explosives to blow up some graphite, although you'll only get a few teeny tiny diamonds out of it. But if you do fancy playing Superman, there's a reliable way of creating diamonds from carbon, even if you do lack his super strength, but have some super lab equipment. CVD, or chemical vapour deposition, is a technique that creates diamonds by adding vaporised pure carbon atoms one by one onto a tiny diamond seed. So the most romantic use for a lump of coal is to put it on an open fire, creating a beautiful backdrop for handing over that diamond ring. Maybe it's easiest to stick to the shop board then. Kat will be back next week with another misconception. Now, it's another super summer of sports, and with the Olympics just around the corner, we wanted to know just what it is that makes a difference between winning and losing. I tracked down one of Cambridge's local sports stars to find out. So where is this? It's the captain's room. Oh, wow. Uh, and it's got on the walls the crew list for every single bike race crew since the very first one over there in the corner, which is 1829. You're going to run out of space. So my name's Steve Trapmore. I'm the chief coach of Cambridge University Boat Club. Uh, before that, I was in the national rowing team for seven years. I went to uh, five world championships and one Olympic Games and won a gold medal in the eight in Sydney in 2000. So uh, it's kind of the heart and soul of the club in here, really, and it's sort of it's testament to the history and, I guess, the rivalry of the competition that's the boat race. Yeah. And uh, all you see on the walls is the date, the crew list, and whether they won or lost. <laughs> it doesn't matter about it, the distance, whether it was a foot or a mile, it doesn't matter. All we care about is winning. Elite sports like the Olympics, the World Cup or even non-professional Oxford-Cambridge boat race are, let's face it, another world where in the end all that's important is the win. So when it comes down to securing that ultimate aim, how much of it is in the mind? Sports psychologist Claire Rosato. I think that when you get to a professional level, the difference between... Uh, winning a medal and not could be contributed to the psychological elements and their psychological preparation for that competition uh, which they have been I guess building up to for the last four years since the last Olympic Games in 2012. And so what's going on what's happening between the brain and the body that's meaning that it can have such a big impact on something which seems so purely physical? We could both have very similar physiological responses to stress, but it's how we perceive those that could make the difference between winning and losing. So we kind of go with the notion that if you think, you know, you have enough resources to cope with the demands of a specific competition and you're perceiving it as a a challenge, you're more likely to experience positive emotions and that has an impact upon your performance in a positive way. Whereas if you perceive it as a threat, you start to think, oh, you know, I'm feeling quite anxious. Actually, this is a bad thing. Then you can start over-focusing on your performance. You can have skill breakdown, which happens quite a lot in elite sports where athletes are placed in really highly pressurised scenarios. They start to focus on their actual movements and that can cause disruption. What's the kind of physiological mechanism that's going on? recent research uh, suggests that cardiac output increases so it's the amount of blood flowing around your body in one minute and with challenges and association with a decrease in tpr that basically is constriction or dilation of the arterial walls so really we associate a challenge with with that state and, and more of an adrenaline response whereas threat we see more of a cortisol response, so quite an increase in a stress hormone, which is something that I've looked at in my research. And we find that in, in a threat state physiologically, there's not really much change in cardiac output. It's either sustained or actually decreases a bit, but there is an increase in total peripheral resistance, so therefore the arterial wall starts to constrict. Blood isn't 
easily flowing around the body compared to in a challenge state. So in a challenge state, you're actually getting increased blood flow, which I guess is then going to your muscles, also back to your brain, re-oxygenating. Yeah, higher glucose utilisation, and that can help impact on decision-making as well. An example is a golfer, Rory McIlroy. He found it really difficult to putt a really easy ball from 19 feet, and that was in a major competition. And I think that's a really good example of where a really high-level athlete can actually break down because of pressure and not dealing with that pressure in a very good way. So this is kind of really high-class athletes doing really quite simple mistakes. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. And I'm sure, you know, some of these things will happen again during the Olympics in Rio. Okay, so bottling it at the last minute would definitely put a dent in your game. Does that mean coaches like Steve train their team's brains as well as their brawn? I think every single training session you look at adds a, an opportunity to develop psychology in, in some aspect. It might be through discipline and focus and consistency or it might be through toughness and pure grit. So it's something that we develop actually through training as well as you know, off the water in the classroom a little bit. What are the goals that you're aiming for within them? You just said grit and resilience. What do you mean by that? We're talking specifically about the boat race here and it's a hugely mental battle. A lot of the delivery comes down to belief and belief in not only what you're about to do, what you are doing, but what you have done to get you into the race. We keep pushing and keep pushing and keep developing all of the areas that come together and culminate at the pinnacle on race day. So we do a lot of work on how to handle the pressure, how to handle people shouting at you, how to handle encouragement, how to handle people shouting derogatory things at you you know all of that stuff goes into how we build the guys up and the team up to make sure that there's a there's a real good robustness and confidence when they go out and perform you've mentioned how you're really building in this psychological training within everything you do but you also do things in the classroom has that changed because you must have around a 20-year career in in rowing yes it has very much so I mean I think if I looked back to when I first came here I came into a program after winning year and uh, I took the ball by the horns and moved on with the experience that the previous coaches have built up. I think that was fine at the time, but we've been up against some really, really tough opposition from Oxford. And I think this year, more than ever, I've drawn on my own experience as an athlete. Because we, we won the Olympics in Sydney in 2000, and that was 88 years since the previous British win. I used that experience that I went through as an athlete to help the athletes here understand that just because something seems insurmountable, it is possible. And, you know, we started right from day one with a really go-after-it, go-get-it mentality and pushing each other to the limit to find what, where those limits are. And I think one of the things that people, um, or certainly coaches, can do too easily is put a limit on what is possible. And I think one of the things that I've learned a lot over the period of of being at Cambridge that actually the athletes always surprise you you know how far they can go how hard they can go how well they can go oh fantastic stuff and good luck to all our athletes who will be competing in the Olympics that was Cambridge University boat club coach and Olympian Steve Trapmore and before him Anglia Ruskin sports psychologist Claire Rosato
You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Connie Orbach, and with Kat Arney. The 11th of July was World Population Day, and at current figures, there are over 7.4 billion of us living on this planet. That number continues to grow, and alongside that, the proportion of people living in urban environments is also increasing. As our cities sprawl and real jungles make way for the concrete kind, is there any place for nature? Join us as this week we swap songbirds for sirens and get wild in the city. First up, to help us on our search for biodiversity among the building blocks, is ecologist Mark Goddard from the University of Newcastle. Hi, Mark. Hello. So let's start from the very beginning. What do we mean by biodiversity? Explain it to me. Well, it's a very important question. So basically, we understand biodiversity as the range of living things that are on the planet. And it it's often expressed as the number of species or what we call the richness of species that live within a certain place. And it can even be a garden, it can be a city, or it can be a whole country, for example. And when we think about the biodiversity in, say, cities, big towns, small towns, villages, and then countryside areas, what do we see changing between cities and urban areas in terms of biodiversity compared to more rural and countryside areas? Well, typically what happens is as we move along a a gradient from a rural area to a city centre, more often than not we see a decrease in the biodiversity. So especially when you move into a city centre, very dense urban area, everything's covered with concrete, there's no habitat for plants or animals. So we do see a significant decrease in biodiversity at this intense level of urbanisation. And is that across the board? So we've got fewer different species of plants, fewer different species of insects, fewer different species of mammals? Most different taxa follow this same trend. Um, But there's an important piece of work that I was involved in a couple of years ago. We looked at about 100 cities across the world and we compiled the list of species which were found in those cities. There were 54 cities that we studied for for birds. And what we found was that actually there was over 2,000 birds recorded living in 54 cities, which is actually about 20% of all known bird species, so a striking amount. Um, And at the same time, there are also over 15,000 plant species. Um, And that that represents about 5% of the total amount of, of plant diversity on the planet. So it does seem that towns and cities can support important biodiversity. And are there any kind of counterintuitive examples where maybe being an urban environment might actually be better for some types of wildlife? Good question. So um, another study that, that I was involved with recently called the Urban Pollinators Project involved looking at insect pollinators within uh, 12 towns and cities across the UK and comparing the amount of different pollinator species within the, the town or the city compared to nearby farmland and nature reserve. Um, And what we actually found was that although there were no significant differences between the the numbers of pollinators overall, when we just looked at the the bees on their own, we actually found there there were more species of bees in uh, in the cities compared to farmland. So it seems that certainly for bees, cities can actually be very, very important habitats. Now, I live in London. I've lived in in various parts of London. I've lived over in East London, right next to a nature reserve and had a sparrow hawk come down in my back garden one day. That was exciting. I've also lived in places where it's felt like there's no green spaces and no gardens or anything like that. Does it mean having areas for biodiversity in cities that they have to be big parks, big nature reserves? This is an active area of research, actually. So it's an an important question. Um, 
simply put, no. I mean, if you think about gardens, for example, it is um, something I've studied myself quite a lot. And in a typical city um, such as Leeds, where I'm sitting now, around about 30% of Leeds is covered by garden. So you know, that's a huge amount. And if you think of maybe an individual garden doesn't contribute too much, but when you think about how the whole network of gardens spreads across the city, then they're extremely valuable. So what you do in your garden can really make a difference. If it's somewhere really tiny, what if you've only got a window box or a balcony? Yeah, again, it all adds up. I mean, if you think about putting some pots out on your windowsill, even if it's some herbs for the kitchen, they're fantastically good for bees. Small spaces can really contribute when you think about them collectively as a whole. And, And kind of briefly and very selfishly, what good does it do us as humans to have more nature and biodiversity in our cities and to be thinking about it as we go forward? Basically, that research suggests that actually having biodiversity around us and experience that biodiversity can positively affect our well-being. Um, although the relationship between is quite a complicated one. How well we can perceive biodiversity, um, we don't really know, but certainly it suggests that it can be very good for our health. And I suppose as the world becomes more industrialised, more and more of us are living in cities, living in flats, living in the concrete jungle. Perhaps it will help us not to forget that there is a a natural world out there. Absolutely. I mean, if you're thinking of the UK now, it's at least 80 or probably 90 percent of us live in towns and cities. So we are becoming really increasingly disconnected from nature. So we need to make sure that we have as much left within the city as possible for most people. The only encounters they get with nature, you know, it is in their own backyard or in their local park. So we need to do everything we can to to support as much biodiversity as possible in those places so that they can have those positive benefits that we've been talking about. It's all good stuff, except for the slugs that get into my kitchen. Not good. Thank you very much. That's Mark Goddard from Newcastle University, and we'll be hearing more from him very shortly. Clearly, we should be encouraging nature in our cities, but where's the best place for it? parks, gardens, or maybe just an old demolition site. The Creekside Discovery Centre sits on a purpose-built brownfield site in South London. The term brownfield site refers to an area that has been previously developed. And as the centre's tour guide Nick Bertram suggested, they're a little underappreciated. The terrible thing is that uh, what we call greenfields in the countryside have mostly been utterly devastated by industrial agriculture and are extremely poor for wildlife. Uh, previously developed land, which then gets abandoned and then goes completely wild, can be some of the most diverse areas we have, but they all got castigated under this uh, evil label. On that note, I thought it was best to go see a brownfield site for myself. But I just needed a couple of things first. Uh, So you need the same size... I've got big feet. You've got big feet? Yeah. What size? Size nine. Size nine. Get you. (laughs) (laughs) So they're size nine, say size nine waders for size nine feet. Fantastic, I'll find the man's waders. Yes, that's right, huge thigh-high rubber waders. You may have seen something similar on Fisherman. Okay, I feel like a bit of an idiot. <laughs> but I'm that's fine. I'm that's all right, we're, we're, we've got loads of idiots around here. <laughs> All booted up, we were ready to go. Creekside is on a tiny wedge of land with a bank of wild flowers leading down to the river. A rare sight in a part of London that, as you may be able to hear, is undergoing huge amounts of redevelopment. We've cranes to the left of us, cranes to the right of us, cranes ahead of us, uh, and we're going into the valley of the creek. Great. (laughs) (laughs) 
Let's go. As we come over the brow of the slope here, we're moving down from dry land into wetland. And you can see the white flowers just ahead. And they're the flowers of hemlock water dropwort, which tell you you are moving into the wetland zone. And it gets a bit less pretty down the bottom. We start to see yeah, the sludge. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it is sludge. But don't forget where you are now. Uh, if you were standing here six hours from now, you'd be underwater. So up there where all the white flowers are, that's the shallow water. And then when you're moving into the deeper area where the tide's really going to be covering it by more than a metre or so, the vegetation, there's very few plants that can cope with that. We began to wander into the river itself, a hive for biodiversity with fish, frogs, crabs and, well, an awful lot of rubbish, really. I couldn't help wondering if the animals might be a bit happier in a river free from shopping trolleys and old mattresses. Here now, probably not. I mean, the river itself is clean. What everybody wants to do the creek when they first see it is clean it up and tidy it up and pull everything out. And that can actually be detrimental to the wildlife here. The river's about one-third as wide as it was originally. And there are no natural banks. So the only natural bank, which is artificial, uh, in the creek is our beach down into it, uh, which we created. Because a a creek is a very specialised environment anyway, there's lots of things the wildlife has to be able to cope with and actually some of the rubbish in the creek actually helps it do that so jill goddard who was running the project to do with the creek in the 90s uh, she organized a clean-up at the top end of the creek on one weekend over 400 shopping trolleys were removed and uh, a couple of weeks after the clean-up the number of young fish in the creek had halved wow just a couple of weeks after yes so that immediately got everybody thinking about the one thing that had happened that had changed in that period was the removal of the shopping trolleys. And because we've got no natural riverbanks, these are places young fish go in to hide in amongst when the tide comes in. As you can see, at low tide here, there's no big bad fish. No. As soon as the tide comes in, so do the big bad fish. So the little fish need to get out of the way. What they do is they go into the vegetation sites. They can't do that here because there isn't the vegetation. What they have got is shopping trolleys. (laughs) (laughs) So the shopping trolleys accumulate debris. There's only one side anything can get into a shopping trolley. So they're a perfect little refuge. and They provide a niche for not just fish, but all sorts of other invertebrates and other things too. We're not trying to encourage people to chuck things into it. We're just trying to work with what we've got here uh, to to make the best of it, which is what the wildlife does as well. From what I can tell in housing arguments, everyone's saying build on the brownfield sites, retain the greenbelt outside, stop urban sprawl. But is that necessarily the best way to go for conservation? Well, it's disastrous for (laughs) everywhere around here. And um, trouble is... People are using these terms as if they're all meaning, uh, well, all green belt is good, therefore preserve it all. But it's, it varies enormously. So some, some of the green belt is of fantastic uh, wildlife value. Some of it is not. Uh, why can't we have a rational approach to pieces of land? So this piece of land is important for farming, historically, for wildlife or whatever. Let's keep it. That piece of land isn't. Unfortunately, the whole 
a development process is completely piecemeal and what's really happened in London has been completely uh, ignored actually because of the, that lack of a uh, contextual approach to looking at what's happening to the environment. So we've, we've lost a, an awful lot of habitat but in London in the 30 years I've been involved. People don't want to live by sites like this that much, I, I guess. I don't know the answer because this comes down to aesthetics and this is it's easier to train ourselves, change our aesthetics um, than it is to change what wildlife does. I have no idea how you can change what wildlife does, but we can change how we look at things and how we approach things. But unfortunately, really what it all comes down to is money. So these pieces of land... Uh, that may be hugely valuable for wildlife, are hugely valuable to people too. So they're worth millions of pounds. The trouble with wildlife, let's face it, is they're just a bunch of freeloaders. They don't pay rents, they don't pay taxes. They, what, <laughs> they what, don't what, give they, anything they don't do, back. They're absolutely hopeless. They'll never say thank you. So, I mean, what, what can you do for them? You know, so... <laughs> uh, so it's an ethos. It's... It's been impossible to crack. I have no idea. So the whole system gives the appearance of taking all of these things into account, but it, it's, a lot of it is really, you know, greenwash, really is. That was Nick Bertram giving me a tour of the Creekside Discovery Centre in Deptford Creek, South London. I love that, the little freeloading fish in their shopping trolleys. But if brownfield sites are such a wonderful haven for wildlife, but also huge commercial assets ripe for redevelopment, how do we make the sums add up? Well, one way apparently is through something called ecosystem services. This is something that our previous guest, Mark Goddard, is involved in. So, Mark, can you explain to me, what are ecosystem services? Is this the key to making the economics of this work? It's certainly one possible solution. So, ecosystem services is basically about the benefits that people obtain from nature so it's about putting a value on nature think about the provision of food or clean water for example as an obvious way it often involves monetizing nature as well so as an example insect pollinators uh, contribute in excess of 600 million pounds per year to the uk economy in terms of the crops they pollinate and certainly busy little bees aren't they <laughs> absolutely and and so how how do we actually get this to work are there any examples where this has been shown to be effective that we've got a site like this and we've said actually it's mm. it's worth this and it can do this for us i'm actually working on a project right now which is uh, called the success project and it's looking at the value of urban soils for capturing carbon which is another very important ecosystem service in terms of mitigating the negative effects of climate change so as an example, there's a large brownfield site in the city centre of Newcastle and it's been shown that the urban soils there actually capture around about 85 tonnes of atmospheric CO2 per hectare per year. So it's a huge, huge amount of CO2 that's being sequestered by the, this land. Um, and the project I'm working on now is looking at can we actually understand how land designed to capture carbon can also provide other ecosystem services as well, such as supporting biodiversity. And that's where the economics does start to add up, because I think under some of the climate change regulations and things like that, countries can now be fined if they're not making efforts to reduce their carbon emissions, try and capture carbon. So if you can put a value on this, this suddenly starts to look more promising, doesn't it? 
Certainly, it, it is a possible solution. I mean, as a caveat, I must say that many ecologists are a little bit concerned about putting a, a monetary value on biodiversity, for example. It sometimes could be thought of giving a a license for its destruction or a price on its destruction. So that it doesn't always work, but it certainly it's something that appeals widely to policymakers. And ultimately, if, is that the bottom line, that you have to put a value on things to get them in the policy agenda? <sighs> Difficult question. And again, many scientists are divided about this, but, but certainly with the pollination example, you know, it's if you can say that insect pollinators are worth this much to the economy, policymakers can pick up on it. It's they pick up on the figures. So it's certainly one tool for putting a value on nature. Oh, it's sad the bees can't stand up for themselves, but I guess we have to. Thank you very much. That's Mark Goddard from Newcastle University. This is The Naked Scientist with Kat Arney and me, Connie Orbeck. This week, we're burrowing through the brickwork to find the nature in our cities. If you've got any questions or feedback, then just send them to us at chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet us at Naked Scientists. We've already heard how our cities have a surprisingly large capacity for wildlife, but also that in order to protect this wildlife, we may need to work out how it can make a profit. To me, this all seems a little cynical. So I asked UCLA's Director of the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability, Peter Kriever, if the problem is that we just don't value nature enough. People do value nature. Nature is our habitat. So I don't see the absence of, of value at all, and I don't see it in, in political action. Cities all around the world are investing heavily in putting nature back into them. And, you know, nature is a form of wealth. I think the way to speak about nature in cities is inequity and inequality. Everybody around the world seems to be having a conversation about the unfairness of a small elite class having access to so much wealth. Well, Access to nature is a form of wealth. And sometimes I think in the conservation movement, we forget that. We do conservation in wonderful places around the world, in Africa and Mongolia and Patagonia. And we sit around and tell stories about spectacular landscapes and places we see. Well, we're the upper 1% there in terms of access to nature. We have to think about equality of access to nature in cities. And when we frame it that way... States and countries and cities are increasingly willing to pay to give their people access to nature in their cities. It's one thing to look at that from a westernized society where we have gone through that great stage of change. And only now we're talking about putting more effort back in. Is there something we can do at those earlier stages in poorer parts of the world before we get to that point? You're exactly right. Most of our examples, our spectacular examples of urban conservation, are in places like San Francisco, are in places like Los Angeles, where there's a fair bit of affluence, and that affluence is what makes it possible. The more challenging question is, is these newly emerging, they're much smaller cities initially, in Africa would be a good example. Can we have those cities develop so that there's still nature in them? And I think there's two ways in which that is really feasible. One is land is cheap in those cities. So you, it, it's not the huge expense. It's it's more a matter as there's a sprawl, pay attention to the waterways and pay attention to remaining fragments of forest and natural habitat. In those cities, it's not expensive. It's more a matter of 
political will and planning, it's not an expensive endeavor. It's an expensive endeavor in Los Angeles, but Los Angeles has the money. And, you know, I've taught ecology for 40 years. It's cross-cultural. Kids feel awe and wonder when they see nature, when they see a fox, when they see neat birds. It's something beyond ourselves or beyond our species. Awe and wonder for nature is not a Western concept. It's a human concept. Is that quite a different way of looking at conservation or is that the way that everyone's looking at conservation, looking at what we can do for people as opposed to looking at the planet and thinking of ourselves maybe a bit of as a blight on that planet? (laughs) I think conservationists have always recognised that they have to work with people. In other words, human behaviour is part of conservation. I think the slight shift is the recognition that Speaking of people as a blight upon the planet is not very inspiring. And there's an undercurrent of the good old days in that. And I think we all feel the good old days. I have nostalgia myself for a world less crowded. And there's certain places I like to hike. And now when I go there, there's more people on the trails. And I wish there weren't. But that's not a foundation for political action. So I think a way to sort of reframe conservation is instead of it being just about what we've lost – We should be nature futurists. We should be imagining the best possible future for nature and for species and for biodiversity. When we do that imagining, we can't constrain our thinking into saying that the only way to get that best possible future is to return to the way it was in the past. Because if we went that pathway, it would cost us way too much money. It would be disruptive. We would never get there. So if we free ourselves from having only a picture of the past when we think about the future for nature, I think we can be much more creative and have a much better future. Does that make any sense? Yeah. What I get from that is as a species, we have moved the world on too far, really, to go back, haven't we? Yes, we have. Right. And that might sadden us, but we've got to get over it. (laughs) We've got to move forward. And so this is the kind of thing you're working on, right? One of the reasons I moved to Los Angeles, you know, it's a it's a mega city of the world. It's viewed almost as a dystopian city, yet it's a biodiversity hotspot. There is an increasing awareness and appreciation for nature here. If you go to action movies, you've seen the Los Angeles River. It's it's the concrete river where they're always doing the Terminator films and the oh, car yeah, chases. Yeah. There's a billion-plus project underway to restore that river. All the fish in the Los Angeles River now are non-native. It's been so modified. It's got carp and bass and tilapia. On the other hand, there's a lot of of really spectacular native birds. You have egrets, great blue heron, osprey. Now, as we think about what we're going to do with that that Los Angeles River, I might argue those non-native fish may not be what we wanted, but the birds don't care. So maybe we should take delight in restoring the Los Angeles River, accepting the non-native fish, but encouraging and taking marvel in the native birds and the spectacular birds that everybody can see. So that's an example of thinking about conservation in a way that's future-oriented, that really has something for people in it, and that really has something for biodiversity in it as well. That was UCLA's Peter Kariva, showing us a future-focused concept for conservation. 
We've been hearing today about what we can do to protect biodiversity in an increasingly urbanised world. But what can wildlife, and specifically animals, do to help themselves? Professor Philip James is an ecologist from the University of Salford and he joins us now. Hi, Philip. Hello. So what are the challenges specifically to animals when areas get more and more urbanised? Well, cities in general, they differ from the rural areas in a number of ways. Compared to rural areas, urban areas, which we can think of as being landscapes dominated by concrete, brick, tarmac, they're usually warmer, they're usually full of more artificial noise, they have artificial lighting regimes, more chemical pollutions, and they have relatively little vegetation. And what vegetation is there is often quite exotic. And furthermore, cities harbour a different suite of parasites and predators and the food that the wildlife can gain tends to be richer in fats and proteins. So all of these things come together to cause stress within wildlife and you can see that in some of the physiological stress signs uh, looking at blood composition for example and their stress hormones. It also means that there tends to be a selection towards certain types of animals, omnivores and frugivores, the fruit eaters, rather than insectivores and carnivores. So what are the options for animals you know, when say the landscape that they've been living in then suddenly a load of houses are, are plonked on it? What can they do? Well in general terms they have three options. They can either run away, they can adapt or they can die. An animal which is able to move could do that to get to a nearby habitat which is still providing what it needs in terms of food and somewhere to to breed, somewhere to nest. But if an animal is not able to move for whatever reason, then it would eventually die out as a result of starvation or through some other cause, disease, poison, predation, unless it is able to adapt. And what are some examples of animals adapting? Obviously, I don't really want to think about them dying. What are the changes that, that happen? This is generally covered by an idea of called plastic behaviour. And plastic behaviour is this idea uh, that within a life cycle of or the lifetime of any individual species, it can change something about its behaviour. It might be the way that it responds to artificial light or the way that it responds to sound. Are there any particular examples of this happening? Yeah, uh, if we think about birds and uh, what they tend to do, if uh, they're living in an urban environment, we tend to find that their song changes in one of three ways. They either sing louder, and that is actually the most common thing that they do, or they change the frequency of their song. Typically, the uh, the notes, the sound of an urban area are, are fairly low-pitched, and so a bird can raise its tone above that low pitch. Or it can change the time that it sings, the time of day. It might sing earlier or later when it's quieter. And if we think about the great tit, which is a common urban bird, it's been shown that in noisy compared to quiet conditions, the great tit song is shorter, faster and at a higher pitch. Uh, we are urbanising at quite an incredible pace. Uh, certainly in London, I see more and more blocks coming up. There's more and more developments, I know, in the Cambridgeshire area and many, many other places across the UK. Can animals actually keep up with this? Can they adapt at a fast enough speed? Well, some can and some can't. Those that have got this plastic behaviour ability, those that can change their behaviour 
rapidly enough, these are the ones that are able to survive within the urban areas. It might be that they change their food source. It might be that they change when they do things, the time of day that they're active. It might be, as I've already described with the great tit, uh, the way that they sing. These changes in plastic behaviour can occur very, very quickly and they can change more than once within the lifetime of an individual bird or an individual mammal for that matter. So go back to the idea of the great tit. It could adapt the way that it sings because of a particular environmental issue that it's coping with today. If that changed tomorrow, it would start to adapt again. Does this mean that they're kind of going to be okay and we don't need to, to worry about the animals? The ones that are able to adapt, they're going to be okay. And what we find is that across the world, the fauna and flora of cities tends to becoming more the same. And it's the species that you find in cities are more like those in another city than they are in the countryside around about those cities. So maybe there is hope and wild cities are possible. Thank you very much to Philip James and also to our other studio guest, Mark Goddard. Now it's time for Question of the Week. And this week, Lushka has been looking back in time with this question. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. Hey, scientists. This is Kat from Kansas City, Missouri. I was reading a Gary Larson comic the other day and noticed all the cavemen had silly names. And it got me wondering, did cavemen even have names? When did human beings start naming themselves? We ask you what you thought on Facebook. Alejandro wrote, Did you suppose the first name was an insult? Mammoth knows? And Andrew thinks, I think early humans would have given names to their young out of affection rather than necessarily like we do today. To get to the bottom of this caveman mystery, I enlisted the help of linguist Professor Shigaro Miyagawa from MIT. But first, what do we mean by caveman? The thing to keep in mind is that the idea of caveman is, for the most part, fiction that was created by popular culture. It's based on things that appear to be real. A lot of things have been discovered in caves, like paintings and artifacts with symbols. But the image of them hunting alongside dinosaurs, for example, is a romantic fiction of evolution. Got you. So let's step away from the cavemen like Fred Flintstone and look instead at our own species, Homo sapiens. How did we first start to communicate with each other? Well, there are a lot of theories, as you could imagine. One theory says that they communicated in single words, just like monkeys. Some monkeys have a single word system like snake, leopard, and eagle to let the others know that a prey, like a leopard, is nearby. Another theory, which is by Charles Darwin, says that prehumans communicated by singing, just like birds. He observed that bird song is the nearest analogy to human language, and birds sing to attract mate. So maybe our ancestors communicated this desire to mate by singing. Which of these is true, single word system or singing? Well, we don't really know because language doesn't fossilize. Actually, what I think is that both were probably true. Our ancestors communicated in words to warn others of a prey in the vicinity and singing to attract mate. This singing could have been an early framework for things like grammar and the early start of language. But back to the original question, when did names come along? Human language appeared uh, only recently, some say about 100,000 years ago. That was around the time that Homo sapiens were migrating out of uh, East Africa into the Eurasian continent. 
they were hunter gatherers. But once farming became possible around ten thousand, maybe twelve thousand years ago, you had more fixed roles and a larger community of people. So you had to come up with a way to distinguish individuals. That's when you started to assign names. Certainly, the origin of human language、uh, in evolution is one of the great mysteries of science. The best we can do without a time machine. Thanks, Shigeru. Next week, we will be scanning the horizon to answer Lot's question. How did the moon get its markings? Do you have an answer to that loony question? Then send it in to Chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or get involved on our forum, nakedscientists.com/forum. And that's all we've got time for. Thanks to everyone on the show. Next week, Man's Best Friend takes pride of place with a show all about those cuddly canines. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC, and Rolls Royce. I'm Connie Orbach, and until next time, goodbye.